This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In 1992, director Emil Ardolino and star Whoopi Goldberg gave the world a rollickingly fun film full of mobsters, chorus numbers, and nuns. In 2024, we continue our appreciation for Catholicism with a brand that knows a thing or two about resurrection. The film is Sister Act. The whiskey is OKI Reserve. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are in the year 1992 to look at one of the highest grocers for that year, Sister Act. Now, Brad, as I recall, this was one of those years where we had to make a tough decision on which film to actually review this week. Folks, if you don't know, perhaps this is your first time joining us. This season on Film and Whiskey, we are reviewing some of the highest grossing films from each year, spanning from 1988 to 2019, and we landed smack dab in 1992, where we were trying to decide between Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, or Sister Act. (laughs) And having just done Home Alone, a movie that I find delightful and have no ill will towards, I just, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to spend two out of, you know, three episodes talking about Macaulay Culkin and the Wet Bandits. So, Brad, you know, I've seen the movie now. I know what Sister Act is like, a movie that I had never seen before. And I'm still glad we made this choice. Yeah, it's nice to have a little bit of a change of pace, right? Uh, You know, two weeks in a row of Macaulay Culkin might have been a little too much, (laughs) even though Home Alone 2 is a great movie, right? You get you get Donnie Trump in there. Mm. It's a good time. (laughs) Fun, fun film. Yeah, man, I'm glad we did Sister Act. And I I think it's because I texted you after I watched the movie, Brad, and I gave you my final score. And I don't want to spoil my final score for the movie yet, but I will say I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. And part of what I enjoyed about this movie is that it it does not have high ambitions. It is an entertainment. That is all it's meant to be. It's a fun little diversion. And I think that even within that category of fun little diversion, it's really well acted. Like, the the script is pretty good. Like, the direction is fine. I think they probably could have done a better job with the direction and and some choices that are made along the way. But, like, it's a solid movie. And and I did not at any point in watching this movie think, I wish I was doing something else or this is dragging on. At every point of the movie, I was invested. I was entertained. And sometimes that is more than enough. Yeah, I was actually feeling pretty sick yesterday and I I was sitting in my bed watching it on my laptop and I was like, well, you know, we're recording tomorrow. I should probably at least watch like 30 or 40 minutes, you know, only have like an hour left. And I watched the entire film. Mm -hmm. I got caught up in it. I was like, wow, this is this is genuinely a fun little flick. 
I, I think that if I'm being honest, Home Alone kind of falls into a very similar category. Mm-hmm. But it's around Christmas time and it's beloved and we've been watching it for years and years and years. And so that makes it so much more nostalgic and fun. But if I'm being honest, the the quality of these two films is somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was growing up, one of my aunts that we would go visit a couple times a year. She lived like an hour away, but she just had a lot of movies in her house. And it was always like it was never the Oscar winners, but it was always a really good representation (laughs) of what I imagine, you know, the average person in America would have if they collected X number of movies. Like I remember Forrest Gump being on her shelf and I remember Braveheart being on her shelf and, you know, her preferred action stars were always there. I'm sure Die Hard was there. Right. But Sister Act is one of those movies that I remember seeing on their shelf. And it's because. It was just an absolute phenomenon at the box office. It made $250 million in 1992, which is kind of insane, Brad. I mean, especially for a movie of stakes this small and of a budget this small, to make that much money is, I mean, like it really struck a chord in the early 90s. Yeah, there's something about religion and and nuns that just really, (laughs) really knocked it out of the park for everyone. I just see like David Zaslav furiously scribbling at Warner Brothers. More, <laughs> more nun content. <laughs> All the nuns. All the nuns, man. All yeah. right. Hey, well, we're going to get into talking about this movie. But before we get there, we want to say whether this is your first time listening or if you've been with us from the very beginning, we'd love for you to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform. So wherever you're listening to this, if you want some some more sister act uh, I was going to say some more nun action. I don't want to say that at all. Uh... <laughs> if you're enjoying it so far, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a five star review, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. You can also find us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, even on YouTube at Film Whiskey. Brad, it is time for us to get into America's favorite segment. Are you ready oh, for it? I dude, I am so ready for this. It's a little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad's gonna give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. I'm assuming this was your first time seeing Sister Act. Is that Absolutely, fair? Bob. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes I'm right, Brad. You Sometimes you are I, accurate. I had a hunch, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, I so... mean, this came out when I was two years old, mm-hmm. I want to say. So, you know, not necessarily a film when I was 8, 10, 12 years old and able to say like, yeah, let's watch this movie. It, you know, it probably rotated out of the blockbuster, uh, you know, up front section. So I, I never really saw it. And I didn't have an ant that had 50 million movies, so. <laughs> All right, man, you have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of the film. And what we mean by that is to spoil the hell out of this movie, Brad. You can say anything you want about the happenstance of this movie. You get one minute on the clock and go. Sister Act is a film about Dolores, who is a nightclub singer that witnesses a mob execution. She's moved into police custody and uh, kind of a witness protection program where she joins a convent full of nuns 
in which she learns the importance of diligence and discipline and also reforms the choir to actually sing well. And the Pope comes and visits. And the movie ends with Pope John Paul II <laughs> sitting up there in the rafters, just absolutely boogie. Just, yeah, happy as a clam. He's just kind of like clapping as he like uh, <laughs> shuffles back and forth. It's very, very cute. All right, man. Uh, this movie is one of my favorite types of movies that you saw in the 90s. And I mean, I would say even as recently as like 15 years ago, but you just don't see now because it's Mm -hmm. not based on a comic book. But that's just the movie that on paper is absolutely preposterous. Like it, none of this would happen in real life, but that's why it's a movie. And that's why it's funny. And that's why it works as a comedy. And I just wish that we had more movies like this, where it's like person sees a crime committed and is put undercover in witness protection with a bunch of white nuns. Yeah. And like, that's the plot of the movie. Cause it's, I'm on board already. You know what I mean? Yeah. hundred percent. The, the plot is completely implausible, but the characters that it introduces you to is priceless. Mm-hmm. And like, that is why this movie works. The nuns in this movie are unique and funny and they all have distinct personalities and none of them have like a big overarching crazy story they're all just interested in being nuns and 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 being kind of fun and having their own little thing and Whoopi Goldberg has great interactions with them and Professor McGonagall Maggie Smith <laughs> is just one of our best actresses I really want to get into talking about Whoopi Goldberg, but I think we've already established a natural segue into talking about Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith is an interesting actress for someone of our age, Brad, because I'll be 100% honest. My first exposure to Maggie Smith was as Professor McGonagall in the first Harry Potter film. Oh, yeah. I did not know, obviously, as an 11-year-old, that she was an Oscar-winning actress. And to this day, I've never seen the movie that she won her Best Actress Oscar for back in the 1960s. What kind of a uh, cinephile are you, Bob? I know, right? Well, a lot of her films are just like, I don't want to say lost to time, but certainly like relics of a certain era. And they just like, I don't know anyone that's talking about Maggie Smith's 1960s films anymore. However, I had this interesting thing, Brad, where it was like, I was talking to somebody about Paul Newman the other day. And how uh, his his last movie, Road to Perdition, is one of my favorite Paul Newman movies. And by the time you get to that film, Paul Newman looks so old. Like, I think he was only 75, <laughs> but he looked like he was 90. And it was the same thing. We were just talking about this with somebody on one of our recent episodes, how Richard Harris in Harry Potter was like 68 <laughs> and he looked 90. It's It's just one of those things where I'm only used to Maggie Smith looking old. And when she hit Harry Potter, she looked old. And now she just looks like an older version of that. Mm-hmm. Sister Act is in this this weird zone where it's like, I know what young Maggie Smith looks like now because I've seen enough pictures of, of her old movies. And she's right in between young Maggie Smith and old Maggie Smith. And it looks like almost looks like a completely different person because I only know her old face. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but like. I was shocked at how young she looked in this movie. And it was only not even 10 years before the first Harry Potter movie. Yeah, no, she's not allowed to look young, Bob. No, she Uh, has to look old forever. (laughs) Forever and ever. I I think that I went through this weird phase during like while I was watching Sister Act where I 
imposed her older face on her in my brain where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, she's clearly like in her 70s. And then I like actually looked at her and I was like, oh, she looks like she's maybe like 48, 50 in this film. And that is way younger than she's allowed to be. Just <laughs> so much younger. I feel so weird talking about it like this, but it's like I've never seen her in a film where she isn't old. She's made so many movies, even this century, and I've seen most of them. She's old in every one of them, Brad. She's not old here. Yeah. Uh, I I don't want to, you know, completely correct you, but her award winning movie was Best Actress in a Supporting Role in California Suite from 1978, starring Jane Fonda and Alan Alda. So she was she must have been nominated. She made this movie back in the 60s. And I only know the name of it because it's such a it's an interesting name for a movie. It's called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Oh, and I thought she won Best Actress for that. She must not have. But I know she was for sure nominated. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, she is an incredible actress. She just has like capital P presence mm-hmm. when she when she is on screen. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. And I think well, she does a, a great job in this film. Like, I agree, man. And and I think that in lesser hands, this is just kind of like your standard bitchy role until yeah. <laughs> like until she's yeah. not bitchy anymore. You know what I mean? But like from the beginning of the film, she doesn't seem like she doesn't come across as a taskmaster, even though the other nuns are like, you know, a little bit intimidated by her. And she clearly like runs a tight ship and she's regimented. She she always seems to have a soft side. She always seems to be a caring person. And I think that to be able to infuse so much of that into the character non-verbally, because it doesn't necessarily come across in the script, it really is a great performance. And I, I'm sure that she was at a place in her career in the early 90s where she was kind of just looking for work and looking for a movie that she could take home a paycheck. And like, this seems like one of those films. But actors like her and like Michael Caine, who were doing paycheck movies at this time, I think it says a lot about them that when you're watching the movie, it doesn't seem like they're cashing in. They're not phoning it in. They're not just here for a paycheck. Like, is this Shakespeare? No, but she's giving a really good performance in this movie. Yeah, I mean, this is the the working generation of actors that looks down on these young, spoiled people, right? <laughs> like, like, these people have been acting since they were children, They've been trained most likely in, you know, English theater and that like you can tell that regardless of the role that they take on, they're going to take it seriously, whether it's, you know, Michael Caine in Batman or in Secondhand Lions. Right. Like, and, and that's he's... what I'm saying. Like, you know, Michael Caine, when he's making Dirty Rotten Scoundrels in the late 80s mm-hmm. with Steve Martin or when he's doing Muppet Christmas Carol, like. At the time, people are looking at that and saying, like, I can't believe this man is acting with Muppets. Yeah. And here we are 20 whatever years later after the Muppet movie came out and we're like, oh, this might be the the best iteration of Ebenezer Scrooge ever put mm-hmm. on film. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's how seriously the man took it. Yeah. And I, I think that you see that here with Maggie Smith. I, mm-hmm. My favorite parts with her are near the end of the film when she's engaging with Whoopi on a level of an equal and you can see in her eyes how she looks at Whoopi and the other nuns and the respect that she has for them like there's just a talent there that not 
many actresses could have mm-hmm. in this role specifically. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to talk a little bit about Whoopi Goldberg. And I want to set the stage by kind of talking about what it's like revisiting Whoopi at her peak. Because now I think most people only know her for being on The View. Like she's been on The View for 10 years, probably. That, and she doesn't really act in movies anymore. Every now and then she'll turn up. She made a cameo in the Color Purple movie that just came out a few months ago. But like she's she's not really acting anymore. And so, you know, we look at her the way we look at like Shaq and Charles Barkley on the inside the yeah. NBA. You know what I mean? Where it's like. Yep. I know them as a broadcaster now. And then you go back and you watch Charles Barkley, like annihilating people during his career. And you're <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's the same guy. Yeah. I also think there's a level of like for for people our age who came of age after Whoopi had already had her like her peak. I think sometimes she gets lumped in with uh, with almost like novelty acts of the 90s. Like people, people look at like Carrot Top and Whoopi as if they're like the same kind of thing. And that's not accurate at all. Like she was a very famous comedian, but she was also a really well-respected actress. I mean, she won an Oscar. She was nominated for at least one more. And then you turn on a movie like this and it's, it's her coming off of the high of winning an Oscar and returning to comedy again. And the charisma, dude, is just off the charts. Like I couldn't believe how good she is in this movie, Brad. Yeah, she she commands the camera whenever it is on her, and she has an ability to be incredibly disarming, and the way she kind of interweaves herself with the other characters is just really incredible. Mm-hmm. And the the movement from the start of the film of being very selfish and very, you know, me-oriented till the end of the film where you can tell that she has been changed by the nuns that she's lived with feels like a genuine transformation. Mm -hmm. And I I think there's something really meaningful about that, especially for the fact that they don't actually show Whoopi like, I I mean, I guess there's a moment in the film where she's like washing, scrubbing down graffiti and things like that. But for the most part, they don't show her growing in her self-discipline and things like that. You just kind of assume like, okay, the month has gone by and and clearly she's grown up a little bit because she is not nearly as childish as she was at the start. Mm -hmm. I just love that at each phase of her character, the way she acts, the character is totally believable. Like when she's standing up to the guys in the nightclub at the beginning of the movie and a little bit sassy, it's like, oh, yeah, she can she can pull this off. And then for me, the, the moment that I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a great performance is the first time she goes into choir practice and she's kind of forced to go there after hearing how bad the choir is. And they ask her to kind of lead a song or help conduct a song. And she puts all the singers where they need to be. And she starts walking them through what it means to perform and how to stand and how to project your voice. And it is like, it is such a naturalistic. It's like she was meant to be a teacher. You know what I mean? I felt like I was in a classroom, Mm -hmm. like watching somebody You know, Brad, I did choir in high school and in college. I know you did choir, at least in high school. Yep. Whoopi's not much of a conductor. Like her hands don't actually do (laughs) what you're supposed to do when you conduct. But in terms of presence and teaching ability, it like it transported me back to like some of my favorite memories from doing choir when I was growing up. It was just it's so natural for her to slip into. And it sounds so silly to say like, 
why wasn't she nominated for anything for this kind of dumb comedy? But that's the reason this movie works. That's the reason this movie made $250 million. Like, she's just that good. Yeah, there's a natural feel to the way that she brings the character to life that is just really endearing. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think that's the biggest difference, I would say, from like her current persona. Because if I'm being very frank, Bob, the, the Whoopi Goldberg of The View is very caustic overall, mm. right? Like whether, whether or not you find yourself more liberal or more conservative, she definitely puts herself out there in a very, very strong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so most people know her as being very liberal. And I feel like that's the one thing people know about her is that she's just liberal host on The View. And you don't necessarily see the charming aspect of who she is and who she was or how she was able to comport herself in these films. And I think that for me was the big thing I took away. I was like, man, she is incredibly charming and deserving of the stardom that she had. Yeah, I mean, it gets me back to the inside the NBA thing with Shaq. Yes. Like yeah. when you're when you're watching Shaquille O'Neal as a commentator, there's moments where he's kind of goofy and he does his little bits. But when they're like, Shaq, what did you think of Giannis tonight? He's very flat. He's very monotone. He doesn't really have a lot of charisma and personality. And I think it's kind of the same thing with Whoopi. Like whatever her views are aside, there's just not a lot of personality infused into what she does on The View. And when you see her in her element in a movie like this, there's just such a level of control and comfort in front of the camera. It really was kind of revelatory for me. Brad, let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit more about the movie itself. I think we can work in some of the supporting characters as we talk. One of the things that I was really worried about is the fish out of water element of the story taking over. And so when she first shows up at the convent and, you know, they ask her to pray over the meal and it's very clear that she doesn't know. She doesn't remember <laughs> how to pray. And yeah. it's a, it's this fun little comedic bit. And I, I smiled, but I didn't laugh. Because I think part of me was like, oh, my gosh, is this going to be 90 minutes of us chuckling at someone getting Christianity slightly wrong? You know what I mean? Because I just that doesn't make for a good movie. I don't want to do that. I'm so glad that there's the two or three obligatory things and then they're done with it. And then she's acclimating and people are already accepting of her. So there's not a lot of conflict there. There's not a lot of strained jokes. And I think that was like. That was probably my biggest fear going into the movie. And at least for me, I have to say they did a good job hitting what needed to be hit and then moving on. And not only hitting what they needed to hit, they also portray nuns in a very positive light. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if a movie like that would get made nowadays. Like everybody has to have their dark side and, and, you know, how they've they've done poorly. And at the end of the day, these are just a bunch of nuns. Who are living simply and, you know, want to make the world a better place. Yep. And you you see the positive impact that they have on Whoopi. And I, I just felt like the positive portrayal of Christianity was was refreshing to me. Yeah. And not even just of Christianity itself, but just of like whether or not you agree with Christianity, whether or not you're a Christian. Like the idea that these people who live this sort of ascetic life have something to teach us. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? At the end of the movie, they basically say like, hey, she's one of us at this point. She's a nun. But even if Whoopi had never become a nun at the end of the movie, like 
the idea that they are still imparting good and noble things. I think that's the thing that sticks out to me is, oh, if this movie got made today, it wouldn't be as earnest. Yeah. And the earnestness is honestly what makes the movie work. Yes, 100%. It's the idea that not only are they imparting good things to her, but she's helping reform them some as well. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're kind of meeting in the middle in bringing things forward a little bit, but also staying true to who they've been a, as a convent. And the the earnestness with which they interact with each other is what makes the movie so fun. And, you know, there's the obvious reluctance of, of Dolores at the start of the film. But, man, these nuns are so charming that her transition to enjoying them is so believable because I enjoy these nuns so much. Mm -hmm. All right. So <laughs> we've been praising this movie pretty profusely here. I have to say, man. Uh, what is going on with the very weird and eclectic neighborhood that they are in in San Francisco? Because <laughs> it's a convent that's across the street in one scene from a bar. And we'll talk about the bar itself because that's another wild endeavor. <laughs> but then the next day they look across the street after she confronts Maggie Smith and says, like, we need to go out into the world and help people. And like the bar is not there anymore. And it's been replaced overnight by like an old rundown, like adult video store or something yep and there's there's both bikers and what seems to be homeless and drug addicts but also stylish teens walking around like yeah I, and then like people start wandering in off the street and like the first people that come in are the stylish teens and then the second people that come in are like the whitest couple i've ever seen wearing like you know cosby sweaters yep i what what's going on here yeah, it's the cross section of America, Bob. <laughs> San just, Francisco, a true got... melting pot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the edges of this film are where things start to fray and, and fall apart. Mm -hmm. the, there's just so much of this movie where you're kind of like, okay, I'm focused on the nuds, but if I really took time to think about it, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think nowhere is that more evident than just like everything Whoopi's character does is like designed to draw as much attention as possible when her entire purpose is like, you need to be laying low. And I understand that's the point of the movie and, and from whence the conflict comes, but also like, you know, it gets to the point where she has done such a good job of reforming this choir. And it's such a big draw that she's on the news now. And, you know, thank God Harvey Keitel doesn't see her on the news. And then they're like, the Pope's coming. And Maggie Smith, who's the only other person who who knows who Whoopi Goldberg actually is, tells Whoopi that she doesn't want to do the modern concert for the Pope, mm -hmm. not because it will draw attention and get her killed, but just because <laughs> she's in her feels about not being in control. And it's like, did neither of you think about the fact that maybe being next to the Pope will get too many cameras on you? Like, it just seems like they drop the whole witness protection aspect of the movie whenever they want to and they pick it back up whenever they want to yeah it, it's a it's a ridiculous i i guess i would say there, there's some plot contrivances things happen <laughs> because they need to happen yeah also like you know maybe we shouldn't have her singing publicly with the pope around and gangsters that's what i'm saying like they, kill no the one bats an eye at that no one bats yeah. an eye at her being up front and center on the altar every sunday 
Yeah, I, I you know. <laughs> it's it's a movie, Bob. Just, it's definitely. Gotta... That, I had to tell myself that eight times watching this. I was like, you know what? Yes. It's just a movie. It's fun. Let them be. Uh, speaking of an, another thing that kind of felt sideways to me, I watched this film and Bill Nunn plays the lieutenant yep. who helps keep her safe. They pronounce his name as Eddie Salva throughout the entire film. Salva, S-A-L-V-A. When I looked his name up, in uh in IMDb, it's Eddie Souther. Mm-hmm. What's up with that, Bob? I don't know. Why I watched can't... the movie with subtitles on, as I do with most films, because I'm an old old man. <laughs> and it, I think it's one of those things where, like, when you see it spelled out, and then you hear them saying Salva, you can see how they're like, oh, I think they're saying Souther. Yeah. But if I had had them off, I'm with you, man. Like I. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have thought that it would be like Souther, not Souther. But yeah, yep. <laughs> but regardless, nope. Salva, Brad, pop uh, quiz for you. Do you remember where we have seen Bill Nunn before? Was he in Point Break? I don't. Maybe. I can, I can't remember. All I can remember about Bill Nunn is that he has the most prominent cheekbones mm-hmm. of any human being ever to exist, mm-hmm. and it's incredible. So the uh, one that no, I was, Bob, what is he from? The one that I was thinking of is that he plays the very uh, impactful character Radio Rahim in Do the Right Thing. Oh, yes, dude. Radio Rahim. What a character. Yeah. So this he literally this is just a couple years after that. So I think most people would probably know him from that. And then he shows up as a cop in this movie as a in, cop in a very ironic <laughs> way. <laughs> If there's anything that like signifies the importance of taking a paycheck acting job, <laughs> it's like I went for this that's, iconic, that's like F the police role, and now I'm a police officer. <laughs> the true ice tea track. He's I, w- on it. I wonder how Spike Lee felt about him taking that role. <laughs> that's a great question, man. <laughs> All right, Brad, before we go to break, there's two more people, I guess three more people in the cast that I want to talk about. Two of the nuns. Wendy McKenna, who plays Mary Robert, the kind of shy, mousy one. She does a really good job, I think. But the one that was a star-making role was Kathy Jimmy as uh, Sister Mary Patrick. I And I think she's really, really good here. And this is what kind of sets her up on a course to be in, like, one of apparently everyone's favorite childhood movies, which was Hocus Pocus. Yeah, I think they're both really, really good. And I think this is the era, the early 90s era of small supporting roles being like your shining performances of a movie. I just really love that kind of thing here. Yeah. There there are so many great little performances by the nuns that I, that kept me interested and involved throughout the entire film. I think, I think especially standing out for me was Mary Wicks as mm-hmm. Mary Lazarus. Mm-hmm. She just killed me because the the transition for her from feeling kind of left out and excluded to like one of the team eating ice cream with the girls at midnight like that. She just was so charming and funny in a way that only an old white nun could be. (laughs) Well, then finally, you have Harvey Keitel, who, again, I was aware of this movie, Brad. I thought that I knew what this movie was going to be. I had no idea Harvey Keitel was in this movie, and he's like one of the lead roles. This comes out the same year that he makes Reservoir Dogs. And I think it's one of those, like, I had a moment of epiphany about how 
things get funded in Hollywood. Because in our Reservoir Dogs episode, we talked a lot about how at this stage of his career, Harvey Keitel really was like a benefactor for a lot of independent filmmakers. He is the reason Reservoir Dogs gets made. He's the reason Quentin Tarantino has a career right now. And then I watch him in a movie like this and I'm like, this is why Reservoir Dogs got made. Like, yep, this paid for him to help pay for Reservoir Dogs. And because of that, we have Quentin Tarantino. And it's just this really cool chain of events. And it, it hit me at the end of the movie when he was chasing her through a casino. And, and I just wonder, you know, if Quentin Tarantino ever goes back and watches this movie and sees this man chasing a nun through Reno, Nevada and thinks, <laughs> because of this scene, I have a career. Yeah, 100 percent. Harvey is one of those characters or one of those actors that like I've known his name since I was a child. I literally watched this film and did not know that that was Harvey Keitel. Like, <laughs> how how's literally... that? I feel like he's one of the most distinct looking and sounding actors, too. Oh, that, I, that's I crazy just to me, dude. He looks like generic Italian guy number seven. <laughs> the literally the only thing that stuck out to me about his performance was that Vigo Mortensen in Green Book mimicked every intonation, oh, oh, 100%. At, like. Like, even at the start, he's wearing a white beater that, like, is one of those weirdly thick ones mm -hmm. that I remember Vigo wearing in Green Book. And I'm like, there's there's got to be something here, man. Like, I think Vigo watched Sister Act for notes on how to play his character. <laughs> I just think it's so funny that you you won't you don't know Harvey Keitel to see him, because to me, it's like when Willem Dafoe pops up in something like it's just and we've seen him in so many movies for this podcast now. I mean. Reservoir Have Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Taxi Driver, Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, the, this is at least the fifth one. I'm I'm probably forgetting some, too. That's so funny. I Literally, you named those, and I'm like, oh, he was in that? He was in that? I can't believe it. Oh, he was in that? I'm going to start getting mad at you. We need to stop here. <laughs> we need to drink some whiskey. What do you say we who try was this? He in, Go ahead. Who was he in Grand Budapest? He was the guy in prison with like the tattoos and he kept flexing his pecs and he helped like murder all those guys to get Rafe Fiennes <laughs> out of prison. That was Harvey Keitel. Yeah, that was Harvey Keitel, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I would never, ever be able to pick him out of a lineup. That's crazy. All right, man. Let's drink this whiskey. What do you say? Let's get to it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, today we are checking out OKI Reserve Batch Number 1. Now, you may be familiar with the name OKI if you've been around whiskey circles for a few years. This was a brand that was originally launched by what is now called New Riff Distilling, back when it was first being set up by the Party Source store in Newport, Kentucky. Uh, they were launching New Riff, and they decided to call their whiskey OKI. This is what they were producing from sourced whiskey while they were waiting on what we now know as New Riff to age. And they called it OKI because it stood for Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. They were heavily marketing it there in the tri-state area. 
it was a really well-loved MGP product. And then New Riff came of age and they said, we don't need to call this OKI anymore. They abandoned that brand. And now we know that is New Riff. Well, a couple of years ago, some people in Cincinnati said, hey, whatever happened to OKI? And they bought the brand name. And so now they're sourcing whiskey and releasing it as OKI. To my knowledge, it has absolutely nothing to do with New Riff anymore. Um, I don't know if anyone from the original brand even has like a stake in this new company, but they resurrected the brand OKI. Bourbon nerds on Instagram freaked out for a couple months and, and rejoiced heavily. And now, Brad, we have before us their initial offering, which is a blend of at least five whiskeys, the oldest of which is, let's see, 10 years, uh, the youngest of which is eight years. Uh, no, hold on. The youngest of which is three years, but it's almost entirely eight, nine and 10 year product. It comes yeah. in at 100 proof. I am very excited to drink it, Brad, because it looks like just the color on this looks incredible. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And to be clear, I think they said that 99.8% of this is eight, nine and 10 year whiskey. Mm -hmm. So I am very curious, like who was like, you know how much three year old whiskey we need? 0.2% of this batch. <laughs> this tastes too to good. We have to put it... <laughs> at least a few drops of, of really crappy whiskey in here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, either it's really crappy or it was like so distinct that it added something to the other 99.8%. I this don't is, know, This man. is one of those things where they were like almost done with the blend and they were like, ah, oh, man, we've got like almost enough to fill 50 barrels. Yep. We need like... <laughs> three gallons of something and they ran to the store and grabbed you know ancient age off the shelf or something and <laughs> threw, threw that in here <laughs> yes that's all right exactly what uh, i don't want to i'm not talking crap about this brand it just i'm with you man i, I wonder where the 0.2 percent of three-year bourbon came from <laughs> yeah. but what we have in front of us is a blend of low rye high rye bourbon uh rye whiskey corn whiskey and light whiskey so I'm really looking forward to this, man. Let's just dive right in. What are you picking up on the nose, Brad? This is a really pleasant, interesting nose. There's some orange notes going on, kind of citrusy. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of caramel. For me, it has like a really nice fresh bread. Uh, you know, my, my wife has been baking homemade bread a lot lately, and it kind of reminds me of that. And then there's some like dark stone fruit that comes through as well. I think I'd probably give it like a seven and a half on the nose. Mm -hmm. It's really promising and I, I could see it getting better from here, but I, I'm going to temper it just a little bit. I'm kind of in the same place, although like it's promising because I can tell how I can already tell how well crafted it seems and I can yep. tell they're using like well aged stock here. A few seasons back. Oh, a lot of seasons back, Brad. I can't remember exactly when we did it. We had um, we did an episode on like how to make an old fashioned which in retrospect, oh, yeah. it's like, how did that, how was that a whole episode? That's like a 30 second process. But we featured these syrups from a company called Proof Syrups. Yeah. And this smells exactly like that. It's, it smells like an old fashioned in a glass. I get a ton of orange peel. I get some cherry. I get like, I don't know, like if it's brown sugar syrup or demerara, there's a lot, a little bit of bitters and spice to this. It just smells like a really good old fashioned. And I think I'm with you. It's promising. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the nose. When I got into the palette here, it, it had some really beautiful notes of toffee. There was cinnamon, clove, cherry. And I almost kind of like when you put it all together, 
it almost kind of felt like a Sour Patch Kid type of vibe. There's a lot of stuff going on here. It's decently complex. I think I'll give it an 8 out of 10 on the taste. All right, Brad, I took two sips because I wasn't entirely sure where I wanted to go after the first one. I think the first thing I'll say, I try not to make mouth sounds on this podcast, but right now I'm salivating so much because this drinks hotter than 100 proof for me. Like it was really spicy and prickly on my tongue. Uh, The ethanol was definitely present. It doesn't have a, a ton of chest burn going down, but I think on the palate, it presents like a higher proof whiskey. I definitely get notes of that old-fashioned thing. I get a lot of cherry on this. Um, On the first sip, when I went to swallow, it turned really almost bitter. Like, it was heavily, heavily charred and almost like a tobacco flavor for me. So I took a second sip to see if maybe it was just me getting acclimated. I think it was, but I still wouldn't say that this finish is sweet. Did it for you? No, it does not finish sweet. Uh, I think that it finishes really spicy, mm-hmm. and I like that a lot. Uh, <laughs> there, like on the finish for me, there's tobacco, there's clove, there's the cherry kind of sticks around, but it's more of a dark cherry that's a, almost bitter a little bit. Mm-hmm. I I thought that the finish was spectacular. That that's where I'm going to give my highest score at an eight point five. I think I'm just going to go at a seven for both the taste and the finish. It was a little bit different than what I was expecting from the nose. And I wish there had been a little bit more of that fruity complexity that we got on the nose. It really just kind of it tipped into more of like spices and bitters for me and not enough of that overarching cherry and orange. Uh, So when it comes to balance, I think it's well balanced, but there was definitely a fall off for me. Still, I think this is a really good whiskey. I'm going to give it a 7.5 on balance. Uh, I'm at an 8 on balance. Probably probably very similar notes. Uh, I think that there's a lot of really complex flavors going on here that pair together really nicely. All right. When it comes to the price on this, uh, according to Breaking Bourbon, which is what we use for a lot of our information on these whiskeys, the MSRP was $75. Now, again, I, I need to say... $75 sounds like a lot of money, and it is objectively a lot of money to pay for a whiskey, but they're using 10-year bourbon, 8-year bourbon, 9-year bourbon. They're sourcing it from all these different places. They're blending it. Like This is a very labor-intensive sourced whiskey. I think objectively, like at, at what it would cost them to make this and what the market dictates, $75 is not unfair. I also think there's a lot of whiskeys I prefer to this at $75, but at the end of the day, for me, this category is more about, is this priced fairly or not? And I think it is priced fairly. So I'm going to give it a, I'll give it a seven out of 10 on value. Yeah, I was literally in the same spot. Seven out of 10. This is pretty good value. I think if you got this bottle for like $65, $70, it'd be like a nine out of 10 value. So not the worst thing to spend uh, with aftermarket value and, and things like that. All right, Brad, I'm coming out to a 36.5 out of 50 on this. Where are you at? Uh, I'm at a 39 out of 50. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought you were going to be like significantly higher than me based on some of your scores, but that's bringing us to a 75.5 out of 100 or a 37.75 out of 50. I think that's a perfect place for this. It's definitely a recommend for me, 
but it's just sitting below that 40 out of 50 mark where we really start to rave about something. Yeah, this is on the edge of being great. But as it is, this is a really solid whiskey that if you and a buddy wanted to go in on together, you will not regret the money that you spend. You know what it was that kept this from being a 40 out of 50, Brad? What's that, Bob? It was that 0.2% three-year. Yeah, that was it, man. If, <laughs> I if could they taste hit it. only. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what say you, Bob? How about we get back into talking about Sister Act? Let's get to it, Brad. All right, everybody. That was OKI batch number one, a whiskey that almost knocked our socks off, Bob. Almost. My socks are, are dangling right now, but they're not off. <laughs> That's, that sounds dirty. Hey, man, you, you're the one that put that image in people's minds. <laughs> well, Bob, I think it is time for us to get into our next segment of the day. Canada's favorite. Two facts and a falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob. Two are right and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents me with three items about the making of this movie, uh, which he presents as fact, one of which is a complete falsehood, fabrication, fib, and lie, and I have to figure out which one that is. Brad, I'm, I think I'm sitting at two and two right now on the season. I got... You sure are. I got a little haughty, a little full of myself, and I have plummeted from two and oh to two and two. Yeah, I think you need to spend some time in silence, reflecting on your life. I need to do at, penance. Inquiring of the Lord. Yes. Do some penance. Yeah. All right. Well, I have said uh, four Hail Marys and however many are fathers. And <laughs> Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, an opening scene shows Dolores as a young girl played by Isis Carmen Jones. Later the same year, Jones played a de-aged version of Goldberg's character, Gwynin, in the Star Trek The Next Generation. Hmm. Fact number two, Dolores' girl group is named the Renoles, a combination of two female singing groups from the 1960s, the Runners and the Benoles. Fact number three, when Eddie takes Dolores to the church, she asks him, what am I going to be, Quasimodo in the bell tower? An obvious reference to Victor Hugo's classic The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mary Wicks, who plays Mary Lazarus, later played a singing gargoyle in Disney's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. That is true. I know that for a fact because I recognized her voice while I was uh, watching the movie last night and I looked her up on IMDb. So look at you. Uh, she did play a gargoyle. So it's one or two. Um, and I got so excited about saying number three that I forgot what both of them are. <laughs> uh, the young version of oh, yeah, Whoopi yeah. at the okay. start of the film. That's one. Yep, and then the second one was just about the name of her girls' group being uh, from groups in the 60s and 70s. I think it is more likely that number one is false. However, that girl looked so much like Whoopi Goldberg that I want to believe that that is true. <laughs> I could not believe how much she looked like Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, it was it was very impressive. I'm going to say two is the falsehood just because I want one to be true. Well, Bob... The wishes of your heart have come true. Number one is true, and number two wow. is the falsehood. All right. Look at you. All right. Now, now, did you make up everything about that fact, or did you just tweak something? Uh, fact about the falsehood? About the falsehood, yeah. 
Uh, she did make it as a combination of groups, but the name of the group in the movie is not the Renaults, and there's no such groups as the Runners or the Benoles. It is all false. Nice. As false as false can get, Bob. <laughs> there you go. You know what? We have not mentioned the singing group that she's in at the beginning of the movie, singing in a Reno nightclub. Okay, what is going on there? I thought it was really funny, and I loved at the end where where she's saying her goodnights, and, and in between words, she's just like, you don't give a shit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I laughed really hard at that moment. Yeah, the the whole the the part of it that I didn't understand was it felt like there was conflict between her and her singing mates, like her 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 backups. That just felt weird. And I, I guess maybe we just didn't have enough movie to establish what was going on there. But that part felt really weird. The the part of her heckling the audience was lovely. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> that just made me laugh because. Nobody gave a crap. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the the opening to Mrs. Doubtfire the following year where it opens up on him doing that voice work where he's singing Figaro. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it's almost exactly the same. It's like a person, a comedian doing their shtick and flopping really hard. And that's how you open your movie. I really loved it. I don't know that I thought that there was conflict between her and the other two singers. But what weirded me out was how she kept being like, let's speed this up so we can get out of here. And then the music would speed up, but, like, they were clearly singing to a tape. And so I yeah. don't understand, like, who's speeding up, Whoopi? Like, the singers can't do anything <laughs> about it. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. In any case, it worked really well. I also love the conceit of it being set in Reno instead of Vegas. Because it shows, A, like, how far she has fallen, I guess, that she's, like, a performer in Reno instead of Vegas. And it says a Mm -hmm. lot about Harvey Keitel being like a small time player. Like he's not a Vegas gangster. He's a Reno gangster. Yeah. But they also get to double dip on why it's a good thing because they can then shoot their movie in Reno, which is significantly cheaper to shoot in (laughs) than Vegas. So it's like a win win. Yeah. A hundred percent. The it sets things up, especially for the end of the film when Harvey Keitel is getting arrested and he looks at Whoopi and he goes, I gave you a career. <laughs> and, and like everybody knows, she did not have a career as a nightclub singer in Reno. <laughs> There's a great line that Harvey Keitel had at the end of the movie. And, you know, the movie gets even more preposterous at the end because she should have been dead 11 times over. And they just yes. kept being like, oh, we can't we can't shoot a nun. And. They go and they tell Harvey Keitel, we can't shoot a nun. And he goes, she's just a broad. She's a broad in a costume. And they're like, well, how do you know? (laughs) And he's like, listen to me. I know this woman in a biblical sense. (laughs) She's not a nun. (laughs) And just the way he delivers in a biblical sense made me laugh so hard. It's perfect, man. It's literally perfect. (laughs) But that's that's one of the things about this film is it is a comedy, but I don't know if it this isn't a bad thing that I, the thing I'm about to say, I, it didn't make me laugh a ton. No, it was more like cute and clever than it was laugh out loud funny. And I think that actually is part of the key to its success, because, yes, if they had gone for more laughs, 
that means that they would have a it wouldn't have been a PG movie. It would have been dirtier. And it also mm-hmm. would have made the nuns the butt of more jokes. Yep. And I think we've already established like the sort of Disney-ness of this whole thing. Like this fits right in with a movie like Cool Runnings for me, which is like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like we're going to poke a little bit of fun at Jamaicans, but not a whole lot of fun because that would be yep. offensive. It's kind of yeah. like that. Like it's inoffensive. It's cute. It's something you can watch on a weekend afternoon and pay matinee prices and then walk out of the theater and look at whoever you went with and say that was cute. And and then they have your money like that's this is a perfect matinee movie. Yeah. And honestly, Bob, you literally just segued me perfectly into my let's make it a double. Hey, I never do that. That's exciting. Yeah, you nailed it. man. Well, let me let me give the intro here. So first of all. We have a theme song. Let's play the theme song for our last segment of the day. <laughs> Let's make it a double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's, it's the final, final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, it sounds like I have spoiled yours already. Yeah, and Bob, you you are either going to be really happy or really angry that I I bring this up. I think that the perfect movie to pair this with, as you said, matinee, nice, light, just just an above average film that is charming. I'm going to pair this with School of Rock. Ah, boo! I thought you were going <laughs> to say Cool Runnings. No. Oh, what you've duped me. <laughs> I think that this and and School of Rock are wildly similar films. For sure. Like, look at the way Jack Black engages as a teacher is so utterly believable in the same way that Whoopi just falls into the role. I, I think that there's so much here that feels uh, conjoined. I, I, I don't know if School of Rock exists, if Sister Act doesn't do so well, you know, what, 10 years earlier? Yeah, that's a great point, man. Like, I have, I've never thought about the connection between the two, but that is a fantastic point. Thank you. Man, maybe this movie is a 10 out of 10 after all, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, in the, in the course of this episode, all of the movies that I thought about making my Let's Make It a Double have come out. I think that Cool Runnings is a great example. Uh, we mentioned a little bit ago Mrs. Doubtfire. I think that's a really good example just on, like, vibes alone. Yeah. I think the one that I'm going to actually go with to pair it up thematically is a movie that we have also mentioned, and that is Point Break. Hey, let's go. A movie, a movie about the most preposterous undercover setting you can think of. <laughs> we have sent this man undercover in California, no less, uh, to infiltrate bank robbing surfers. Yep. So I think, you, you know, like you could start your evening out with Point Break. Watch your action movie and then finish your evening on a light note with Sister Act, thematically connected, early 90s mediocrity, and you have a great night, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my pick was early 2000s mediocrity. Yours is early <laughs> 90s mediocrity. We're, we're pretty much in the same place, Bob. Okay. Before we get final scores, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you, and it can be as long or as short as you want to make it. <laughs> You and I don't often talk about our backgrounds, uh, having been seminarians and working in churches and being pastors, but I did appreciate all the things we said about how this has an ultimately respectful attitude towards the nuns. 
I want to pick your brain about like them using pop songs in mass and that being like a, a huge draw to the outside world. Yeah. Because A, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> but B, I feel about, like Bob? I feel like this movie was released right at the onset of like the rise of evangelical culture in the United States. Like yeah. early, early Hillsong stuff, like Darlene Check and all those people were starting to like you know, they were starting to kind of infiltrate. Amy Grant had become mainstream at this point. And I think it like I've never seen the attitude of evangelicalism so well uh, elucidated in a movie as I have with this movie, which is like we can dabble in the secular and because people will see that we're cool and we repurpose the secular, then they'll want to come to church where the reality is more like, no, they see you doing a really cheesy version of a song that was good before. And now they don't really don't want to come and get you. So like, I I guess I'm, I was thinking about that a lot while watching this movie. I have no idea if those thoughts ever even crossed your mind, but I'd like to know kind of where you stand on that whole thing and, and how this movie plays into it. Yeah. There's, there's definitely that vibe of, we're moving a church from traditional service to contemporary service. <laughs> and if if you have ever worked in the ministry, then you'll know that that is a huge debate for churches as they go through it. I, I think that where it kind of hits is what you said. They are representing what a lot of churches were going through at the time. I think where it misses is where the church missed. And the idea that that would actually draw people in mm-hmm. to to the church and to uh, a impactful relationship with their creator, <laughs> like the at the end of the day, man, you can repackage Justin Bieber lyrics all you want. It's not going to make people love Jesus more. Mm-hmm. And I like if I can be share share a personal story. I remember taking my youth group to Winter Jam a few times. I'm sure that you've been to Winter Jam at some point, Bob. Can you explain what Winter Jam is? To... Yeah, it's a giant concert series for Christians yeah. <laughs> that happens probably from like November through March every year. Mm-hmm. And they get all the big, you know, uh, Christian artists at the time. Uh, I think, you know, a few years when I went, uh, was Switchfoot there? I don't know. There, there's a bunch of big names. Newsboys. Um, what, what was the band out of Malone that got oh, popular? Reliant K. Yeah. yeah, Reliant K. Like these types of bands are playing. And I remember being there. I took my kids there three, two or three years in a row. And I remember looking around and I was like, there is nothing different going on here than what would happen at a normal concert. Like we're literally just worshiping artists who are giving us crappier music than what the popular mainstream is putting out. And it just felt kind of weird and not like a waste of money, doesn't it? Yeah. And and not in line with what Christ actually called us to. And it just felt kind of gross to me. Now I I didn't feel, I didn't feel that way about sister act that felt charming. And, and once again, Bob, you, you started us off at the top of the episode by saying, this is something that could only exist in a film. Right. And that and that's why for me, them singing Motown hits, 
but with God <laughs> instead of, you know, another human being as the object of their affection. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure. It was charming. It was cute. Mm-hmm. I, I also think it's like really ironic that, you know, she just introduced like basic gospel chords to this choir. <laughs> and this is something that happens in every black church in America every Sunday. And yes. they are not they, like white people aren't wandering in off the street to go see them. But the minute it happens with nuns, they're like, what is this music? You know, <laughs> which opens up a whole other can of worms. We, we, we don't talk about that, Bob. We don't talk about that, man. Uh, I thought that in those scenes, though, where they're where they're singing these updated Motown songs, the only thing that really sold it for me, though, was Kathy and Jimmy's character, because she like sister is worshiping like <laughs> she, she was feeling it. And I was like, oh, maybe this is effective after all. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and on that note, Brad, I'm going to give my final score. This movie is a seven out of ten. It, it's it's kind of a six and a half, but it's a seven. It's like a really soft seven that is everything I said, uh, a great matinee movie that aspires to be nothing more than that, and yet has performances in it that belong in a 10 out of 10 movie. And that's kind of the only reason that it even hits a seven for me. So it's a seven and I give it a thumbs up and I recommend and and all those things. But like, you know, we're not doing like the greatest films of all time this season, Brad. So like, <laughs> no. just bear that in mind. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Bob. I think this is a seven out of ten movie. One aspect we have not mentioned a single time, Bob. This isn't quite a ninety-minute film, Mm-mm. but it is a hundred-minute film, <laughs> and I—that is close enough for me to say, if this movie was any longer, it would drag on. But yep. at a at an hour and forty minutes, it is entirely palatable, easy to digest. I am a big fan of this movie. Seven out of ten. There you go. All right, that does it for us today, but we'd like to know what you think of Sister Act. We also have never seen the sequel, Sister Act 2, that has Lauren Hill. Uh, I've seen clips from that movie. Tell us if we should watch that one. I might check it out. You can find us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at Film Whiskey. Or you can join our Discord. We are on the Discord every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation, you can find a link at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, Brad, we are getting back into the realm of movies that are fondly remembered because we're looking at a film that I keep seeing people talk about on Twitter as perhaps one of the great thrillers and one of the great action films of all time. A movie that may be perfect, 1993's The Fugitive. So join us for that one next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.